Father, thank you that... Um, Thank you for this ministry. Thank you for desiring truth. Thank you that you desire truth in the innermost being and that in the hidden part you'll make us to know wisdom. Thank you that um, you speak to us, as David said, speaking to him about something totally new. Lord, after he's been walking with you for such a long time, thank you that you just revive us and you excite us, Lord, and you take us on and to places we didn't think we'd go and I thank you, Father, for it, and I pray, Lord, that everyone here will be taken on again this afternoon. I, w- that I pray that I'll be taken on again, Lord, and that we'll, each of us um, individually and then collectively, decide that, um, well, we want nothing else but you, that, that you are the one that we long for and that we seek. And I pray, Father, that that will have ramifications as we go home and as we go through the next week, that it will start to really impact every area of our lives, that we have decided that you are the one that we need. And I, um, I praise you, Lord, that you bring us to this point. And I thank you that you won't leave us here. You'll take us on. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, uh, 2,000 years ago then, Jesus, um, 2,000 and some now, walked the earth. And his disciples who worked, walked with him weren't aware of the timing of everything that was going to happen. And when they walked with Jesus, everything was new and was a surprise. And, and sometimes I think we, we want to be like that early church. We want to be like those disciples, not just the 12, but uh, the others who followed Jesus. We want to be like that. We want to be like the new uh, the New Testament church in Acts. We want to transplant ourselves, really, and, and, and catch the fire of that. Um, but when we read through, especially the Gospels, that's, the Gospels are really Old Testament. They're not New Testament. They're, they're in our New Testament, but actually they belong in the Old Testament because the New Testament began with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so... Um, That was the inauguration of the new covenant that God had promised way back in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In fact, that he had promised from Genesis on. And so so when we come to look at our place in God's plan, I think one of the very important things is that we understand that we are born for this time, this time, and for this place. Because you can get lost when you look back and you think of all the great things. You know, Peter stands up at Pentecost and 3,000 people believe. I mean, that's just an amazing thing, isn't it? Um, and, and we naturally, in our humanness, we want to be a part of what looks to us like something really huge and big and exciting. And of course, that's not wrong, but God planted you here. He had you born in the UK or in South Africa or in the Western Hemisphere. And he had you born, you know, in the last hundred years. Sorry, yeah, I'm trying to encompass everybody. Watch where the eyes roll. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> but he did, and, and, and that's important. Because like Esther, you know, that, that, that verse you, you read and you hear repeated so many times, when Mordecai says to Esther, who knows that you haven't come to the palace for such a time as this? Well, I've, we did a series on Esther quite a while ago now, but the reality is we, each one of us, live in a palace. We live in a palace. The Western world is a palace compared to the rest of the world. And we are, it's easy for us to become enamoured with and caught up in the palace things. And so uh, Mordecai's cry to Esther, 
you know, his, his appeal to her that she needs to do something is God's cry to us. You live in a palace. You have everything at your disposal. What will you do with it? And who knows that you haven't been put here for such a time as this. So when you look at your life, and when I look at my life and I think about what can I do, how can I do it, all of those things, remember that, that God deliberately put you here. He deliberately opened your eyes to the word of God. You wouldn't be here all day if he hadn't done that. He has deliberately chosen for you to be someone who studies his word. He has set that alight in you. And what's the purpose of it? There's always purpose. There's always a plan. So, um, so when we're now going to look at uh, uh, some of the things that Jesus said to the disciples as they were asking him questions, uh, you'll know the passage very well. We're going to look first at Matthew 24. Because, Jesus, um, because God wants us to be aware not simply of the signs of the times on a global um, level, uh, and not simply on the, on for ourselves, but also for Israel. Israel is a key... Uh, well, Israel is the center of the world. Let's face it. Israel is the center of the world. And Israel is the center of scripture. I wish it were the UK, but it's not. You know, Israel is the center, and Jesus is the center of that. And so um, when we look at scripture, it's important to know what, what context are we looking at it in and to be aware of what God wants to show us from that context. And uh, we're going to look at Matthew 24. Um, because like the Thessalonian church, which would later be formed by, uh, by the Lord through Paul, the disciples were confused about the timing of things. So I think we can know that one of the basic and biggest confusions in the church or in the people of God will always be the timing of things. Because we are to live with the imminence of Jesus, the fact that he's going to come back at any time, in a time frame that's lasted over 2,000 years. So it is confusing about the timings, and uh, that's never changed and probably never will change. So if you could go to Matthew 24, they're confused. They were expecting Jesus to bring in the kingdom of God then, they didn't understand about his death, even though he told them that he had to die. He had to suffer and die. They didn't understand that. They didn't um, really understand that he was going to go away. Um, and they expected him to inaugurate the kingdom that they had been waiting for. They had been waiting for a victorious Israel. An Israel that would vanquish the Romans and uh, self-govern an Israel that would become what God had promised, the head of the nations and not the tail. Um, and so they, were wait, they expected Jesus to do that. And so as he walked by the temple with, with them one day, by the temple, and he turns to uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem, and he says at the end of 20, chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. 
For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then as you go into chapter 24, you read, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will will not be torn down. Now, I don't think we can ever imagine the impact that information would have had on those disciples. You cannot put yourself in that place because not only was the temple like the the holy place, the amazing presence of God in their midst, what Jesus was saying was that this is going to be torn down. And they could not even imagine something of such magnitude. So everything he's going to say to them from now on is about or related to um, what is going to happen to Israel from that time on, from the time when the temple is totally demolished to the time that he comes back. So when you read through Matthew 24, Matthew 25, I think it's really important that we understand Jesus is talking to the Jews about Israel. Yes, there are principles, as in the Old Testament, that we can take and apply to ourselves. But the message that he's giving here is to Israel. And the wonderful thing for us is that as we understand that, we can see the time markers in what he says. We can plot the course of what he's saying so that we can add that to our broad Second Thessalonian timeline and know where we are in the scheme of things. Everybody okay with that? I know you've eaten, so you'll have to move around sometimes and smile and raise your hand so I know that you're still awake, okay? Because I know some people sleep with their eyes open. So so Matthew 24, um, they've just asked him, um, you know, when, when, uh, sorry, he's just told them that that the temple's going to be torn down. Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus is going to answer those questions. He's actually not going to answer the first one, when will these things happen, i.e. when will the temple be destroyed? He doesn't answer it here in Matthew. Luke will tell us his answer. Luke, in chapter 21, verse 20, tells us what Jesus said to that question. Luke 21, if you, if, if you want to, you can go there, but if not, I'll just read it. Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies uh, for there there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, Um, Matthew, as I say, doesn't uh, record Jesus' answer, but um, Luke does. And we can know when we look at history that the temple was destroyed 
as Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another. And you can go there to Israel now. And on one side of where the temple was, you can actually see the stones of the temple all over the place. They are massive, massive stones. And so not one of them would be left upon the other. And that happened in AD 70 when uh, the Roman emperor, Titus, destroyed the temple, ransacked Jerusalem, and all, all Jews had to flee. Jesus says here, when you, when, um, in Luke, when you see that happening, get, you know, go, run. So AD 70 sees the, um, the temple destroyed. But then we come to the other two questions. Uh, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Two more questions. So, um, Christians differ on how to interpret some of the prophecies in, in, um, in Scripture and how, when things are going to happen and when they aren't. But, um, and the disciples there were probably thinking back to their own prophecies. So, if you could go to Zechariah or not, I'll go there. Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, verse 1 to 4, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. The disciples are linking what Jesus has just said about the destruction of the temple with what Zechariah said in chapter 14 and other prophets say. They're linking two totally different events and putting them together. So they're thinking that when the temple is destroyed, that will be the beginning of the time when, when uh, God will reclaim his land and his people. And Jesus is going to tell them, Actually, no. The question they're asking is, actually, at the bottom, what has happened then to the kingdom of God that God promised? What has happened? And actually, that could be our question. What has happened to the actual kingdom of God coming? We pray for it. What is it when Jesus was asked how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that kingdom to come. And now for 2,000 years, we've been praying for that kingdom to come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those disciples were no different. They wanted to know when will the kingdom of God that God has promised, when will that come? Um, Jesus has just told him he's going to a cross, not a crown. He's not going to be enthroned. He's going to be crucified. And they are worried because they can't pin it all together. They can't work it out. Um, what's prophecy? When you think about prophecy, what does the word prophecy mean? What's Old Testament prophecy? What is it actually? 
Yeah, it's foretelling. It's telling what will happen in the future. Sometimes it's just forth-telling, i.e. saying something immediately that God wants told to his people. But most of the time, it's telling what will happen in the future. And when you read prophecy in the Old Testament, the most difficult thing about it is you don't know which is which often. (laughs) So, for example, Jeremiah will uh, prophesy in Jeremiah 28 about a man called Hananiah, a false prophet, um, that he's going to die. And then in the same um, book, he's going to talk about... Uh, and sorry, and Hananiah died the year after. But in the same book, he's going to talk about a covenant that won't be ratified for a thousand years. How is it possible for us to understand when that will be? And in case we're wondering and thinking, well, we've got all these different opinions, think about this. Peter wrote, when he wrote about this prophecy, in First Peter chapter 1, he said that the prophets... Um, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which have now been announced to you, these things uh, through those who preach the gospel. Um, sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. Yes, verse 10, I should have gone back. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets did not understand when the time would be and when it would come. But you and I have had that revealed to us because we have the New Testament. We have the other part. But... What is the purpose of studying prophecy? Sorry, I'm getting a bit bogged down in my words and I don't want to do that. So what is the purpose of studying prophecy? Yes, learning what God's intended, yes. So we say that again, Izzy? So we know the times, so we know what to do, is that it? Yeah, so that's true, yeah, what else? I mean, that is it, but it's not said in the same sort of way I've put it on the, my paper. So, so, what is the purpose for you knowing about the prophecy in Zephaniah and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah? I mean, yes, you can. You can put them all together. Why did God tell you all this stuff? To be prepared, yes, true. So that you know how to live today. That's the thing, which is what you said, actually. So that you know how to live today. The purpose of prophecy is not so much that you know what's going to happen in the future, but more so that you know how to live today. So if you think about that, think about the fact that when Peter spoke about the world's burning up, our present universe will be burned up. Do you remember he said that, that the world's going to be burned up? Why did he say that? What was his purpose in telling you that? Because if the world's going to be burned up and I'm not going to be here anyway, why do I need to know that? Yeah, and he actually says that in his letter. He says, seeing that all these things will be dissolved like this, what sort of people ought you to be? So when Paul spoke of the rapture to the Thessalonians and in Thessalonians, that we can argue about when it might come, the beginning, the middle, the end of the tribulation, but what was the purpose of it? that he told us. It might be secondary, but what was the purpose of him telling you? We looked at it this morning. The purpose was to encourage one another and comfort one another. 
It wasn't to know when the rapture came. It wasn't to know the details of it exactly. It was so that you could encourage me with the fact that Jesus is coming for you, Anne. You're going to be with him. He's going to call you in the air. A trumpet will blow and one day you will go up to be with him in the air. And when John spoke of Jesus' return, it wasn't so you knew exactly where it would happen or to put it in terms of Daniel's 70th week prophecy. It was so that you and I would know that when he appears, we will be like him. Do you see what I mean? So it's, it's the impact it has today that makes prophecy so important. So even though we're talking about prophecy, what, we're trying to, what we have to try to understand is that God isn't telling us this stuff so that we know what's going to happen in the future. He's telling it to us because it will impact what we do today. And you know that. So Matthew, um, Matthew talks about this coming kingdom and... Um, Jesus will take them back to various things in the prophetic books in the Bible. And he's doing that to show them that there is full harmony between the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't replace the Old. They go together. And there will be a kingdom on the earth of Israel. There will be a kingdom of Israel on the earth. And it will last a thousand years. That is definitely true. Um... Where does what come? Well, Jesus will rule on earth from Jerusalem uh, in, in Israel for 1,000 years. And there will be people, Jews, who rule and reign with him in Jerusalem over Israel. So Israel will be, at one stage, the chief of nations and not the tail. It will be a place where all the nations of the world come to do homage to the king of Israel. That is definitely going to happen. Yeah, Jesus. But why does that matter now, today? Why does that matter to us? We're, we're, we're going to be raptured up before that happens, probably. Why does it matter? Because it changes the way we think about Israel. It changes the way we think about the nation of Israel, the land of Israel. It changes the way we think about the Jews. It changes the way we think about the church. It changes everything about our thinking. Because there's a huge teaching that says the church has replaced Israel. But that is nonsense when you put it into the picture of Jesus is a Jew. He's coming back to Israel. He's going to rule and reign from Israel. That, is, that nation will be the chief of nations. Other nations will have to come up three times a year to Jerusalem to pay homage to the king of Israel. It makes a difference to you when you know that. So when you're reading about Israel in the news and when you're seeing this and that and when you're hearing about the plight of the Palestinians and all of that stuff, hold it in the light of the fact that God has not finished with his people. He has not finished with them. Yes, he hasn't finished with them. They're never, he's never going to throw them out. He's never going to revoke his calling of them. Why not? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The church will never replace Israel. Why not? Yes, yeah, sort of, yes. Say that again. Because he's made an everlasting eternal covenant with them. 
not just with Abraham, although, of course, that's where it starts, but ratified and confirmed through Isaac and Jacob and then through the ten tribes of Israel. If anyone says to you, God has finished with Israel, then you can say categorically, no, he has not. Because if he has finished with Israel, oh my goodness, you're in big trouble. Because he's going to finish with you one day. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. All of the promises of God are irrevocable. His word is like stone and it does not change. So... um, when we come to read this in Matthew, and he, Jesus starts talking to us about a thing that's going to happen, we can be sure it's true. But the reason that it's taught as if this is written to Christians or to the church is because of replacement theology. When people teach that this, Matthew 24, is written about the church, it's because Ultimately, back, back, someone has said the church has replaced Israel. Therefore, this cannot be about Israel, the nation. It must be about the church. They spiritualize every, pro- every promise in the Old Testament and say that it has all been fulfilled in and through Jesus with the church. That is a lie. And the, what's, what's the biggest problem with that lie? I mean, the, I can't say the biggest problem, but what is one of the big problems with that lie? People believe it, yeah, that's, that's a big problem. That, that is the biggest problem, probably, Juliet, yeah. But what's the problem with that? Yeah, yeah. It's deception, yeah. But the thing is, if you can mix and match things, if now God's promises to Israel are not really God's promises to Israel, they're God's promises to the church, so Israel is now completely out of the picture, then who's to say that the literal promises that are written to us in the New Testament are literal promises? Maybe they're just spiritual promises that we can take or leave as we want. Well, yes, they're belittling Jesus. But the thing is, as soon as you start saying that this scripture doesn't mean this, it means that, you can say it about anything. And the whole Bible becomes a book of myth. Yes. So, um, so Jesus actually speaks to his disciples. And what he does was he, inter- he tells them about what is coming on the basis of what the Old Testament promised. So remember, the New Testament's not written. He is the New Testament. So he's just speaking it out now. And then he talks to them on the basis of the old. So what is the God's prophetic plan for the time of the end in the Old Testament? What do you know about it? Just shout it out. And if you don't know anything, just sit quietly. Yeah, he's going to restore. But up to the time of the end, what, what do we know is going to happen from the Old Testament? Mostly from Daniel. Yeah, before that. What you know is that the nations of the earth are going to be divided into power blocks. You know that. And at some stage, the nations of the earth, or somewhere on earth, there are going to be ten of them. Because Daniel's dreams, many of them, talk about things in, in, in um, groups of ten. And the, the most famous one, the statue that actually Nebuchadnezzar has and Daniel interprets, has a statue which is a head of gold, a chest of silver, a belly of um, bronze, legs of iron, and feet and toes of clay and iron. 
And the toes, how many toes are there on two feet? Ten. And actually, the, the interpretation that God gives Daniel is that those ten toes represent ten kingdoms, ten blocks, ten groups of kingdoms. Uh, it's difficult to know which. Um, so there are going to be, the earth is going to be divided into power blocks. One of those power blocks, some people think Western, some people think Eastern, but one of them is going to be headed up by someone called the Antichrist. Only you're not going to know he's the Antichrist until he's revealed. Remember our timeline? Yeah. Hey? Yeah, you will be gone, and I'll be with you. But we can watch from the stands, you know. <laughs> okay, so one of them, maybe the Western, whoever knows, will be headed by the Antichrist. What's another thing that the Old Testament prophesies about the time approaching the time of the end or the tribulation? Yes, warnings. What's going to be happening? So we've got these nations of the earth divided into power blocks. We've got one of those power blocks headed up by a man who will be revealed as the Antichrist. What else? Yes, lots of wars. That, you're taking that from Matthew. But before that, there's lots of talk about that in the Old Testament. There will be increasing tension, especially in the Middle East. That is the increasing and increasing tension within the Middle East which will lead to what? Just directly, this is directly from Old Testament prophecy scripture. This increasing tension in the Middle East, which will result in some wars and skirmishes and all sorts of things, will eventually lead to the signing of a treaty by the Antichrist, which will guarantee peace to Israel for seven years. That's definitely what will happen. There will be, as Boyd has just said, increasing worldwide troubles and disasters. There will be increasing... That's prophesied in the Old Testament, not just the New. There will be tremendous tribulation for Israel. Absolutely unknown tribulation. <coughs> Excuse me, for Israel. Um, and, and no, and after, um, which will involve persecution by, by Western or other, um, other power blocks. Israel will be persecuted until there's a final invasion of Israel. What's the final thing that will happen? Hey? Yes, yes, they will. They'll need to get out of Judea when you see, well, we're going to read that in Matthew. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, get out of town. He doesn't say town, but you know, you know what I mean. No. Um, the final thing of, that's prophesied in the Old Testament is that personal intervention of Jesus Christ, Messiah. The personal coming and intervention of Messiah, who will defeat Israel's enemies and set Israel up as the kingdom on earth. Now, these things are all prophesied in the Old Testament, and they're clearly prophesied. This is not like making things out of that. This is clearly prophesied, most of it in Daniel, but also corroboration in Zechariah, in Zephaniah, in Haggai, in so many different places. 
So as we read this in Matthew 24, we have to read it against that backdrop. Because that's what they heard it against. They heard it against the backdrop of the Old Testament. So, um, what would you expect then if God had prophesied all this stuff in the Old Testament and now God was standing on earth and his disciples were asking him some questions, what would you expect his answers to be? Yeah. Yeah. But just think about it. So they already know a lot of stuff because they already have the Old Testament. So what would you expect God to do now? If you went to God, if you went to God and said, I've read Zechariah from end to end. I know what he says and I know what you said through Zechariah. But there's some things that I need a little bit more on. Would you expect God to say, no, go away and try and figure it out for yourself? You would, yes, you would expect God to clarify and amplify what he'd already said. And that's what Jesus does in Matthew 24 and 25. He amplifies and clarifies some of the things that they knew from the Old Testament, but that he wanted to put flesh on, as it were, in the New Testament. So uh, what about if we have two or three people reading Matthew 24? Let's go from verse 4. Someone read from verse 4, please. Uh, Maybe two people read 13 verses each. Get going, no stopping. Thank you. Okay, someone else, 13 to 26. Those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, 
here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. But behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Thank you. Okay, so can you see what I mean? He's telling the disciples what's going to happen up until the time of his second coming. And he's taking them back to what they already know is prophesied in the Old Testament. So look at what he says. What, what's going to happen? In the first, verse, first eight verses, what do you notice about the first eight verses, or from four to eight? What's happening? Yes. Yes, he's giving an overview. What, what have I just said to you about what's true about the, what, what comes from Old Testament prophecy? Exactly, it's the same sort of thing. Daniel tells us that there will be a block of ten a block of ten, and that the Antichrist will come from one of those power blocks. He tells us there'll be increasing tension in the Middle East and all around the world, and that's exactly what Jesus said. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but this is not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. So what Jesus is doing is saying these things are going to happen. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be tension. There's going to be difficulty. See that you are not frightened. Okay, so um, is, have there always been wars and earthquakes? Yes. So what is... Different about this time then? They'll be more increasing and? More vicious, there'll be more persecution, yeah. There'll be just more and more and more. And what he's saying is, these are just the beginning of birth pangs. What, when do you get birth pangs? Labor. When you're in labor. When you're in labor. Do you get birth pangs when you're pregnant normally? No, you don't get birth pangs until you're in labor. So when all these things happen and it starts to increase, what can you know is going to happen? The baby's coming soon. The baby's coming soon. That's Jesus' point. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been earthquakes. There's always been famines. There's always been these things. But this is not in isolation to anything else. And when you see these things increasing and when you see them happening, be sure the baby's coming it's not a case of, well, it's not going to happen. It's definitely coming, and that's the point. Exactly, that's the point. Now, think about what I said about Israel. What, was, what is the Old Testament prophecy about Israel at the time of the day of the Lord? Yeah, yeah. What, yes, it will be, but it will be restored. But what's going to happen against it? Persecution, persecution, and it will be, there will be tension and, and conflict all around it. What do you see today? You see conflict and tension around Israel. How long has that been going on? Since 1948. So you and I live 
in the generation that is seeing the birth pangs. So it's not a question of whether, you know, I, sometimes I talk to people and they say, well, we've always had terrible earthquakes, it just wasn't recorded. You know, we've always had hurricanes, we've always had this. Yes, that's true, we have. But we haven't always had Israel. And that's the key prophecy. Israel, 1948, back in the land of Israel, now puts everything else into its place. What do you see happening around the world? You see increasing persecution of Israel and increasing anti-Semitism. Actually, in this last 10 years, in a phenomenal rise of anti-Semitism. A phenomenal rise of persecution against Israel. When you look at a map of the world and you see Israel and you see its neighbors, what do you think? It's tiny compared to its neighbors, yet it is the focal point of their attention. It's the. F hmm? Exactly. You should buy the book at the back, The Miracle That Is Israel. It is an amazing book. An amazing book. So. Um, if we want to look at where we are exactly on the time frame or whatever, we, I don't think we can know exactly. What we can do is look at Israel. So Israel came into being when? 1948. What happened immediately? She became a nation. She was invaded. She was invaded. What happened when she was invaded? And? And? One repelled, defeated the invaders. But what happened in 1948? What, what, what did those invading armies manage to do? Yes, they took the, the, the part of um, Israel that, that is called the uh, West Bank. What is the West Bank? Judea and Samaria. It, it, what does that include? Jerusalem, Hebron, Shechem, Bethel, Shiloh, Bethany. Yeah, it is the backbone of Israel. Okay, how much do you think God would allow that to happen? He wouldn't. So what happens next? 1948, they're back in the land. I wasn't born in 1948, but I'm part of the generation that came after it. 1948, they are back as a sovereign nation in their own land, something that has not happened since actually the Babylonians took them in 605 BC. This is the first time that they are a sovereign nation, 1948. They are immediately attacked, and they manage to repel. God intervenes, actually. How can it be? They had no weapons. They just got back after the Holocaust. How could they possibly have defeated the armies around them? But they did. Those armies took the West Bank. Well, it's called, they took Judea and Samaria. Then what happened next? 1967. What happened in 1967? Well, what happened first? They were attacked again. They were attacked again. It's what's called the Six-Day War. They were attacked by mighty armies. What happened? God intervened. God intervened, and it was a miracle. And they took back Judea and Samaria. They took back and, and parts of Jerusalem, or at least parts of it. So how did, how did they win in 1967? Because God, God 
did a miracle. God did a miracle. Um, in, uh, in 1939, there were a quarter of a million Jewish believers, but the Holocaust killed almost all of them. Christians, I'm talking about, Messianic Jews. In 1939, there were about a quarter of a million, and the Holocaust destroyed nearly all of them. In 1948, there were 23 believers in Israel. In 2015, there were 15,000. By 1967, how many Jewish believers in the whole world, do you think? Jewish believers, not Jews. Ju no, no. 1967, there were 2,000 Jewish believers, Christians, in the world. By 2015, there were 300,000. God is at work reviving the nation of Israel, not simply in the land, but bringing them into faith in Messiah. He is doing that. Why? Yes. Why is God doing that now? Because there was a partial hardening in Israel, and it is still continuing, but the walls of that partial hardening are coming down. God has deliberately partially hardened Israel so that you and I, as Gentile believers, could come in. But he is at work in Israel, and there are more and more people coming to know Jesus. It's not a massive revival. It's not a massive happening, but it is certainly happening. What do you think is the point of the ministries that take Jews back into the land of Israel but don't preach the gospel? I've already told you I don't think there's any point, but you tell me. What's the point of ministries that take Jews back into Israel but don't give them the gospel? What's the point of it? Tell me. Why would you do it? He does, but how is he going to deal with them? How is he actually going to deal with them? That's what we really need to get to because, because um, the Bible talks about two regatherings of Israel, and we've had one. The first one is a regathering out of wrath, and it's out of the Holocaust. If you want to read Isaiah chapter 11, I will gather them again a second time. And the first time that they were gathered is a gathering out of the wrath of the Holocaust. Holocaust, And he brought them to Israel. But what is he gathering them for? What's going to happen in Israel? No, they're not. They're going to face a tribulation so terrible that Jesus is going to say, don't hang around, get out of Jerusalem. He's not going to say stay in and every ministry will start ministering to you. He's going to say this tribulation is going to be so bad that you need to get out. What do you think God's heart is for his people, the Jews? He wants them saved. He wants them saved. And the more we ship them in and don't tell them the gospel, what we're doing is putting them into a holding pen that is going straight off to the gas chambers. Um, that's a picture. I don't mean that definitely because I know people who are at work and they love God. I, it's not that. But, but, but make no mistake, the Jews in Israel now are going to face a tribulation worse than they have ever experienced. Yeah. 
Daniel chapter 12 says, There will be a time of distress such as has never been seen in the end times. So the Holocaust will pale into insignificance. If you know a Jew and you want to get him back in Israel, make sure you get him saved first. Because if he goes back and is part of the vast majority of Israel that does not believe, it is unlikely that God will bring him to salvation through the ministry. I've said to you, 2015, 300,000 Israelis are believers. How many, what's the population of Israel? Is it six million? Well, 300,000 is not a big percentage. So God is at work. But make no mistake, the Jews are being brought back for the final tribulation. That's what they're coming back for. And yes, God is doing miracle after miracle after miracle in front of them. Do you remember when Jesus came? What did Jesus do in Israel? He did miracle after miracle after miracle. And he proclaimed himself the Messiah. And they refused him. That's what's happening now. There are miracle, miracle, miracle. How did they survive the 1948 war? How did they survive the 1967? Only by a miracle of God. And yet, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. So, Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Um, yeah, let's go there. Zephaniah chapter 2, 1 and 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame, before the decree takes effect. The day passes like chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. It's not a question of whether, I mean... Benjamin Netanyahu is obviously someone who reads his Bible, who, who knows about God. But he is not someone who has received Messiah. And because he is not, he will go through the tribulation. Now, I'm not... I don't want that to happen. Why does God want the gospel preached to the Jew first and then to the, Jew, to the Gentile? Why does he want us to go to the Jews? Why does he want us to tell them the gospel? Yes, it was theirs first. And also, if they don't believe, they won't be up with us meeting the Lord Jesus in the air. They'll be down on the earth through the tribulation. And the only one who will survive that is those who endure until the end. How long's the tribulation? Seven years. How bad is it? You can't imagine it. You can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. Jesus talks about when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, as Daniel recorded, flee. Zephaniah and Zechariah talk about a third of the nation perishing in the tribulation time. A third will come through. Go ahead, uh, Francoise. Yeah. 
Well, it would be hard to... I'll tell you what I think it means, but in, in isolation, we'd have to go through the whole of Romans chapter 11. But I think that it means... Well, I... Yeah, I think that it means that at the time of the end, when the Jews have come through the tribulation, that the third that have been refined, which Zechariah and Zephaniah talk about, they will, thus all Israel, all Israel who survives the tribulation will be saved. That's what I think that means. Um, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37 talk about the time when the Jews go back to the land, when they are on the mountains of Israel. You know Ezekiel 36 and 37, the dry bones, you know, and that Ezekiel sees. Um, Daniel prophesies about, he gets, Gabriel comes to him and in chapter 9 of Daniel and tells him, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Daniel 9, uh, I think it's verse 24 through to 27. 70 weeks, 70 lots of seven have been decreed for your people. And there are things that are going to happen in that time to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Um, Verse 25 of that says that there'll be an event that triggers those 70 years. Do you know what the event was? The signing of a decree. From the signing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem will be 70 years. When was that decree made? No. When was the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem made? It was made by King Artaxerxes, and you can read about it in Nehemiah. Nehemiah made the decree that Nehemiah and others could go back and rebuild and restore Jerusalem. That was in 445 BC. 445 BC. Why is that important? Because Gabriel told Daniel there'll be a period of um, 70 weeks. There'll be a period of 70 weeks, which was broken up slightly, but there'll be a period of 70 weeks. It has been calculated. I haven't calculated it. I've read this. It has been calculated by scholars that there were 483 prophetic years, i.e. years of 360 days long, not 365, between the decree in Jerusalem and 445 BC and the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Imagine that. Imagine it. 400, uh, uh, 70 times 7 is 490. There are 490 years. 483 of them are accounted for between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and Jesus riding in on a donkey. There's one year, one week, one set of seven years remaining. What is that one set of seven years? Is the tribulation. Where are we at the moment? Where are we at the moment? Sorry, if, I know it's difficult. If you don't know any of this stuff, I know it's difficult. And sometimes it's, you know, we, we're going really fast. But just hang in and get over yourself. What, what is happening now? Between the 483 years and the 490 years is seven years. That's the tribulation. We haven't started that yet. There's a time gap between when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and now or at the start of the tribulation. What is that time called? 
It's the time of the Gentiles and also it's the church. It's the church age. The church age isn't talked about in prophecy in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned. The church age is a totally new thing that is happening in between the time, the first uh, 69 weeks and the 70th week. You and I are the intermission. I don't mean that badly, but that's where we are. We're the intermission. We haven't replaced the main event. What's the main event? Israel and Jesus. It's Israel. Israel is the main event. We're the intermission. I'm not denying or downplaying the church. The church is the bride of Christ. I mean, how much more wonderful can that be? We are the bride of Christ, but we exist in a time that isn't talked about in the Old Testament. Not in any real sense. There's hints of it, but nothing concrete. What's the purpose of the church? Why is God having this time lapse? Why are we... Yes, but, but why did he have the church? Why, why have a time lapse? Why not just deal with Israel and that's it? Because he loves the whole world. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish. God's plan is so wild and so amazing, we could never, ever dream it up. It is more amazing than anything. What has he done since 1948? He has strengthened Israel. He has made them victorious over the enemies that came in to attack them. He has given them advances in science and medicine and their land. They went back to a desert and it's now a fertile garden. They're finding oil and gas and all sorts of other things. They are more, they're something like the seventh or eighth wealthiest individual nation in the world. I mean, yes, why is all of that happening? Why is all of that happening? Because God is a God of his word and his promise. He has brought his people back to the land, which is exactly what he prophesied in the Old Testament. He brought them back and he has blessed them there. Why? He promised to do that and because he loves them and yes and and yes all of this is wonderfully true but he's doing it because he wants them to turn and see who he is. I am the saviour and there is no other. I am God. I am. Jesus is the Messiah. Turn to him, turn to him. There's no Jew in Israel who hasn't heard about Jesus. They are a, a, a witnessed to nation. And God has done miracle after miracle after miracle in their midst. Why? Because he loves them with an everlasting love and he wants them to come to know Jesus before it's too late. Before the tribulation. Why does he want to tell us about this? Why does he want us to know about the tribulation when I don't think we're going to live through it? Okay, maybe, maybe some people disagree. That's okay. But, but why would he ask us? Why would he tell us all this stuff? Because we have a responsibility. 
to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile. Why? Because when you read about the tribulation, you don't want your worst enemy to go through that. So all of it is about God's mercy, about his grace, about his calling to people, to Israel and to the world. Come to me. Come to me. Don't go through this time. That's what I mean about ministries. And, you know, I love what Christians are doing around the world in ministry. I mean, we're doing amazing things. There are, there are ministries that are against, you know, that are really active in sex trafficking. There are against it, you know. There are people that I know who are doing amazing things for the homeless, for the destitute, for all around the world. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But if you don't give them Jesus, you give them nothing. That's the point. That's the point. We have to give them Jesus. Not just in words, but in how we live. So this, all of the social justice issues, they're wonderful issues. But in and of themselves, they won't give someone what they desperately need. They won't give them eternal salvation. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, um, verse 32... Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. When all those things take place, this generation will not pass away. I'm not positive, but I think it could be that our generation, the generation that sees all these things, the reviving of Israel, their miracle, the miracle of them staying in that place, the tension that is increasing around Israel, the persecution that is happening now more and more against Jews, Everything is conspiring to come together in this time. Learn the parable from the fig tree. Look at what's happening in Israel and understand. This generation, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. I wouldn't die for, for the fact that Jesus will come back in my lifetime. I don't know my, how long my lifetime is for one thing. I wouldn't die for the fact that I think he's going to, that he'll come back in, this, in our generation. But I think that that's what the scripture says. I think that you and I will be caught up in the air with Christ. And that's a marvelous thing. And I want to make sure before I go, everybody has heard the name of Jesus from my lips. Everybody has seen what difference he makes in my life. And that, I know, is yours too, isn't it? That's what you want. We'll have some tea. Um, yeah. 
Um, we'll have tea and come back by four o'clock, if that's okay. And then just a short finish and we'll be gone off into the Saturday night.